0: podcast where we talk about farming the why and how people buy. I'm your host Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears. and you watching us on YouTube, thank you for lending me those eyeballs. Oh, I got a special one today, man. I got a real good one today. I'm reaching back into the good stuff today. Please help me welcome the show. Randy Gage. Randy, how you doing, brother? Hey, Victor. Great to be on with you. Man, I'm excited to have you. Randy, let these folks know, in case they've been living in a box somewhere, in a cocoon or a cave somewhere for the last 20 years at least, who you are. I
1: guess if I'm going to distill it down to the, the crystalline essence, I'm a philosopher and I study the philosophy of how you live a rich, prosperous life. And so it takes me into arenas as a podcaster, as a book author, as a blogger, as a speaker. Uh, but I'm happiest when I'm in my lonely writer's garret, hunched over my laptop, uh, thinking about what I think about and what I think other people should be thinking about.
0: So, so just to frame this for my audience, we're, we're gonna talk a little bit about sales because that's how I first met Randy not only is, is, a, is a great speaker, just watch the videos on YouTube, you don't have to believe me. So a great speaker, a great sales guy, but what I've really admired over the years, Randy, believe it or not, I've actually followed you and watched your journey, uh, you know, through, I'll just call it through sales, through prosperity, to I'll just call it the, I don't know, self-actualization at the peak of Maslow's hierarchy or something like that. But let's, let's talk about Salesforce. I mean, how did you get, I mean, I, you know, give the backstory, you know, Randy Gage, let's take it from when you dropped out of high school, I think. And let's just move into business real quick.
1: Well, uh, so I, it's nice to say I'm a high school dropout. If we're being totally honest here, the choice was not mine <laughs> since I was expelled, uh, since I was sitting in a jail cell for being charged with armed robbery and burglary and a few other miscellaneous items of note. And uh, Madison West Senior High School said, just please don't come back. Uh, And I was really fortunate. There were people who believed in me, who saw greatness in me that I couldn't see for myself. Uh, And I got another chance. So like one of the people who believed in me was my public defender. And he was able to get me probation. And uh, I was able to turn my life around. And I'd love to say, that was it, and I snapped my fingers, and then it was all moonbeams and unicorns and jelly beans. But no, that isn't what happened. But I, it started me on the, the right path. And as far as sales, I'm one of these people who hate sales, is petrified of sales, has never made a cold call in my life, uh, and would rather stick a fork in my eye than make a sales call. But I also am a brilliant marketer. And I recognized, well, you know what? If I do a good enough job with marketing, I won't have to make sales calls. Sales calls will call me. You know, I can create a context. I can create a funnel. So that's what I practice working, you know, managing restaurants and learning direct mail and learning copywriting and things like that. And then my real experience was that in sales started with direct selling at 20 years old. I got prospected for the Amway Corporation. And I, I mean, I remember seeing the guy, you know, he had... He had a yellow legal pad like this, and he drew that first circle, and he wrote you in the circle, and then he put five circles underneath, and then 25, and 125. And, you know, and he was saying, and you get a little override on, on the volume produced by all of those people. This is leverage. This is what J. Paul Getty does. This is what you know, Firestone and Ford and Carnegie and everybody you read about and think you're rich. This is what they do. They do this thing called leverage. And being raised by a single mom, very poor my whole life up to that point, nobody had ever told me anything about leverage. And I was like, hotel, motel, holiday inn. Give me some, you know, uh, and so I got involved in direct selling because, um, I recognized the, the power of leverage and I'm, you know, still have an organization to this day, more than 40 years later, not with Amway, they, you know, good, comp- great company, great people. It just wasn't for me, but they seem to have survived the loss of me since they're doing like eight or $10 billion a year, um. Uh, but I, I believe that's one of the, obviously I'm an entrepreneur. I have a lot of different businesses, but, uh, one of my, you know, I'm always looking for ways we can have leverage and direct selling is one of those.
0: The, I want, I want to emphasize the market here. Cause I, I agree with your assessment with your personal assessment of yourself. I agree not that you need validation, but I'm going to agree with it because I saw it firsthand <laughs> We, when, when I first came across you, Randy Gage, who is this guy? I kept seeing you everywhere. Right? I was like, who's this guy? And then I remember, I don't know if I saw a video or something, but I was like, and then when I, I, I don't know if I went with Milton, but I went with somebody to watch. It wasn't Milton, though, our common friend, uh, mutual friend, Milton Olave. Uh, it was with somebody else, I forgot his name. But we went to see you. We went all the way, I think, to Boca. And this is when I have my Randy Gage moment. And I tell this story from the stage. So I've been abusing your name in the background. You just have, you know, probably your ears are ringing once in a while in the universe. But so we watch you speak. I think it was the Florida Speakers Association. This is why I'm going to validate that you are a great marketer. Because this is the moment I had, I call it the Randy Gage moment. I said, I remember we then had a break and I think we sat down for lunch at a round table. I made sure I sat next to you because I was like determined. I said, I came here, I drove here, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna mind suck this guy. Do you know what I mean? I, want, I need I need to understand. And I came from the corporate world business and I just wanted to understand how you did it. And I remember I asked you, I said, Randy, I started telling you what I was trying to do with my business, and then you just stopped me. Typical Randy Gage, shut up, just stop, right type of thing. That was you. It was like stop. And I'm like, I'm like what? And now totally offended, but I just didn't show it, right? And I go. Yeah, you said, "I quote, Victor, what business are you in?" And I said, "I don't speaking." He go, "No." You just said, "No," like that. "No." What business are you in? I go, "Uh, "Training." No. Okay, I'm a motivational speaker. No, that's all you just. I'm like, and finally, I got a little frustrated. Okay, damn it, tell me what business I'm in, Randy, because apparently I don't even know my own business. And you said, and these words, they're right there. He said, you're in the marketing business first, everything else second. And immediately when I heard you say that, I cursed you in my head. The amount of expletives that, that ricocheted in my head, like, ah, screw it. this guy's in the way, ah. you, all that. But it's one of those things where you hear the truth, and later on, it just hits bottom. And I go, that SOB was right, that SOB's right. And it was that moment that I became, became more of a marketing machine because of that scolding you gave me in a very polite way. So I believe you are a great marketer, man.
1: I always approached my speaking business as, okay, I'm in the marketing business and what I'm marketing is keynote speeches or public seminars. And even as an author, although I would kind of, if I had to pick, if I had to narrow down and say, okay, what's your, one subspecialty as a philosopher, I would say writer, because that's my core, being a writer. Um, but I also understand, publishers give me contracts, they give me a book advance, and I, I don't want any publisher who ever gives me an advance to lose money. I want every publisher who says, hey, we're gonna publish a book by Randy Gate, I want him to make money on it, right? So I realize, okay, I may be a writer, but I have to be a marketer first, a marketer in the book business in that case. Uh, or a marketer in the consulting business, and for everybody listening, um, again, or you could say I'm a salesman in the speaker business, or I'm a salesman in the consulting business. But for me, just because, and this is just my own frailties, right? I was, you say, well, you is no. I'm sure you have five guests a, a month who tell you, you know, we love to hear no, because every ten nos we hear, we know we're one step closer to the yes, and. I, when I hear a no, I'm ready to slip my wrist. God, I and mean, he's, well, don't take it personal. Uh, I'm sorry, I take it personal. So, because I grew up very messed up, right? My family, our, our motto is, we put the fun back in dysfunctional. So, I had serious uh, social anxiety issues, and that's why I say, if, if, I was doing an interview the other day and he was asking me about cold calling. And I was like, if I did cold calling, I would just die of starvation. I would just, someday the condo would send somebody in to check on me and I would be laying on the floor dead of starvation because I couldn't make a sales call. Because I'd be afraid of the
0: rejection, right? I got to ask, Randy, I got to ask. So so if you're, the, the dysfunctional piece and the anxiety you know, and if people see your videos on stage, big audiences—we're not talking twenty, thirty; we're talking thousands, right? There is no anxiety up there. I mean, how did you get? How did you get past that? For somebody who's listening right now, says, "You know what? I am that person. I've come from a dysfunctional family. I am anxious around whatever situation may be." I mean, how did you overcome that? The
1: wonderful thing was, I didn't have to overcome it because I didn't know I was that it was something that was supposed to be overcome because I, I didn't know there was such a thing as a professional speaker, right? That's what I am now. I'm a professional speaker. i am in the speaker hall of fame. I've spoke to more than 2 million people in 50 countries, but I didn't set out to be a speaker. I was a marketer. I was had my direct selling business. And so the company I was working with at that time, um, had a you know the first rank was supervisor and i said god people you know they don't get to this first rank quick enough if i could get them to supervisor sooner i think i'd have higher retention on my team so i told everybody hey i'm doing supervisor school this saturday you know i booked a meeting room at the marriott or holiday inn or whatever it was and you know we're going to start at 9 a.m we're going to go to 5 a.m and i'm going to teach you everything you need to know to be a supervisor. And I'm just standing up there in my blue jeans and tennis shoes. And I got a whiteboard, or God only knows, it was probably a chalkboard in those days, right? And you, some of you listening, you have to Google what that is. So I uh, I do this thing. And so I say, okay, I'm going to do this the first Saturday of every month. And people from other teams started hearing about it and asking if they could come and then... People started flying in from New York and California to come to my little, you know, and I was like, yeah, just give me five bucks to help cover the room cost and the donuts. And, you know, and then a big moment, this lady says to me, okay, we have a, we have a big team in Chicago. Uh, If we buy your plane ticket and pay for your hotel and everything, how much would you charge us to do this training for our people up there? And I gave some, you know, 500 bucks or some ridiculous number. And that was it. Right. And, um, later I, um, came to the decision. I just didn't want to work with this company. They got sued. There was a big lawsuit. I saw the court papers, a lot of stuff came out. I was like, you know what I've got to, I'm resigning. So I, I literally overnighted a resignation letter and I thought I used to train my team with this company there's all those people in Amway and new skin and old skin and in between skin and Shackley and Herbalife. And, you know, I'll just train them. Um, and so I became a professional speaker without ever thinking about being a professional speaker. And I didn't even, I wasn't aware of stage craft of, of platform proficiency. I was just, I got all this great knowledge on how you build a team, and people will pay me money to learn this knowledge. And it was only after I joined NSA, National Speakers Association for Guys Who Want More, I learned, wow, there's a thing called a keynote speech, and you've got to craft it and sculpt it a certain way, and then you can do Uh, seminars and workshops and here's how to best engage the audience and here's how to make sure people are interactive and that they get the lesson. And I started to recognize, oh, okay, I should be, it's part of my responsibility. I was blessed. I, I met Bill Gold, who was the first president of NSA. And he told me, you're not responsible for the audience. You're responsible to the audience. You do your best, present your information in the best way you can for them to uh, process it. And then what they do with it is up to them. That's not your responsibility. They decide whether they're going to act on it. And um, so just being this rational, logical, analytical guy that I am, and even more so at that time in my life, uh, I just figured out, okay, here's how to do this stagecraft. So whether the audience is a thousand people, 10,000 people, it, it does. I never was nervous. It was like after my first 80th, you know, 80th speech or something. Somebody said to me, "How did you get over stage fright?" And I literally said, "What is stage fright?" I had never heard that term in my life. And they said, "You know, the fear of speaking in front of people, public speaking." Like, and I'm, you know, running this through my mind. Was I supposed to be afraid of? It's just, I'm, I talk to people all the time, and it was, so I'm like, but I'm nervous at dinner parties, and I'm nervous at chit-chat, and I'm nervous at conversation in elevator. How come I'm not nervous on the platform? And the difference is the platform, I control it. So it doesn't matter. You put 5,000 people, you put 10,000 people, it's my stage, and I know what's coming next. Cause I'm driving the bus. Right. So, whereas, so I, you know, just put a quarter in the jukebox and I'm ready to go. Whereas, you know, if you invite me to a dinner party and sit me next to somebody, I don't know, I'm going to be <laughs> stuttering and stammering
0: and <laughs> sweaty palms because I, I don't control I mean, that. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. I think maybe when you started out with the gym shoes, as you say, gym shoes, jeans and t shirt you know, talking to one or two people. Maybe it was just such a gradual progression that you became that good. You are like, you were one of the people that I saw, you know, at least 15 years ago that I was like, man, that guy really has, he knows how to speak because I'm really critical of speakers. And I used to see speakers. I used to go to the Florida Speaker Association and I used to see these speakers who had these CSPs, whatever. You know what I mean? I'm like, no, because to me, title doesn't mean a damn thing. But you were one of the guys that I was like, look at him move. Look at the way he moves a crowd. You know what I mean? You're very good at what you do, man. We to, that's a high five, man. So, but you've been, you've been going through some interesting changes I've noticed over the years. And the first shift I saw, there was Randy Gage, the ultimate marketer, great speaker, right? But then you went through, and I think you're still there in it, but you know, there's this phase where you've introduced a new Randy Gage that I'd never seen before. And it, it, I'll call it the prosperity, Randy, where you talked about the prosperity mindset and I think it's a good time to talk about that you know you know what was that shift what was that transition what was the i don't know what was that catalyst that made you shift heavier into prosperity
1: it was my first midlife crisis mm. i've got this amazing successful business as a professional speaker i'm doing workshops all over the world and you know So I, I, and I would drive, I had a lady named Sherry who used to run my company, right? And I would drive her nuts because it'd be like every six months or so I'd come in and I'd say, so we'd have a workshop that I was doing that, that I'd be taking around the world, right? It'd be a, usually a weekend workshop and uh, that would be our big cash generator, right? And I would just, and we usually had staff meetings on Monday morning. And so every six months, eight months or something, I would come in a staff meeting and I'd say, okay, I can't do another one of those workshops, you know, kill it. And she's like, Randy, that brings in 80% of our revenue. You know how many? Man, I'm like, I'm sorry. If I have to do another, you know, seminar and how you get a prospect's phone number, I'd rather just stick a fork in my eye. So forget it. We're not doing it. We've got to figure out something else. Because I just, I wasn't growing. That wasn't challenging me. And this kind of happened a couple of times, and then um, I was supposed to go to San Francisco on a, a Thursday or Friday morning. I was going to sleep the night before. I had an early flight. So I had to get up at like five five thirty a.m. And I was just thinking about what if I just sold this business? What if I I just I, you know, I had a friend, a guy named Tom, who was a trainer in direct sales, Tom Schreider. And I was thinking, I wonder if if I just sold my business to Tom Schreider, he would, he could make so much money out of it because it's the same uh, core thing. And he'd get a whole new database and everything. And I'm just, and then I I don't know what I do, but I just, I want a business. My dream was like, I wanted to have a business that I could work with my laptop under a palm tree anywhere in the world. So I'm lying awake, tossing this around, and pretty soon it's like 3 a.m. and I haven't gone to sleep, and I've gotten like a 5:30 a.m. wake-up call. And I'm like, okay, my mind is made up. I'm gonna I'm gonna sell my business to Tom. And um, so I you know get a couple hours sleep. I get on the plane, I send a message to Tom. And so it takes till like five, six days before he can connect. And I say, God what an ideal. Like I, I'm willing to sell you my business. And he was like, um, no thanks. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> no no desire, you know, he had a good growing going business. He had no need for buying my business.
0: And by the way, it sounded good in your head, right? It no, good. it sounded brilliant.
1: It was just, you know, perfect. I had it all figured out.
0: So mentally I was already
1: checked out. I had already sold the business. And meanwhile, I had told my friend for sakes that I had I was going to offer this deal to Tom. And he had casually said, well, listen, if Tom doesn't buy it, you let me know because I'll buy the product division. You know, all of your audios and videos and books and everything. And so when Tom said no, I called uh, Ford and and I sold him the old division, the product division. And I said, "Okay, I'm going to retire. I'm going to play softball and race my Vipers and drink out of a coconut. And that was my first midlife crisis, what I would now call my first radical rebirth, or actually my third or fourth, but I didn't know it. Um, And I was retired for about nine months, and I was kind of going crazy, but I didn't know why. And then Bill Gove, who I mentioned earlier, he took me to lunch. He said, I need to talk to you. And we had lunch, and he was kind of like my grandfather that I never had. He was just... I just adored him and he adored me. He just, I was his golden child for whatever reason. We had just met at Florida speakers association and he adopted me. And he said, you are the greatest speaker in the world. And I know because I used to be him and you need to be on the platform. And I get goosebumps every time I think about it when he, cause for him to say that to me meant so much. And I was like, God, Bill, I'm, uh, I don't even know what to say. I'm, you know, let me process this. Let me think about
0: it. Now, did he know, did he know at that time you were selling the business?
1: I had already sold the business. I had been retired for, you know, months. And it pissed him off, he was, he was mad at me for not speaking. Because he just, he really did believe I was the greatest speaker on earth. Um, and so I'm kind of, the next day I go out for my morning jog and I'm processing this, and what I had recognized was the thing that had turned me off to what I was doing was I didn't feel it had significance anymore. Like, okay, here's how you get a prospect's phone number. Okay, here's... But I always was trying to shoehorn in this other content in the back door, which was the prosperity stuff. Because, I, you know, the mindset stuff. Because, I mean, you and you know better than me, but you could probably teach somebody the mechanics of how to be a successful salesperson in one day, Right? It's the mindset stuff. It's the prosperity consciousness stuff that makes the difference between the lady who makes $4 million a year selling real estate and the lady who sells one house and then quits and the house was to her brother in law, you know, or her mother. (laughs) Um, That's the difference, the mindset stuff. And so I'm jogging around and I'm thinking about what Bill said and I'm just thinking, well, I love being on the platform. I love that part of it. I love seeing people develop. But I don't like having to sneak that stuff in the back door. So what about if I just... And then I made the decision. Okay, I'm going to come out of retirement. I'm going to build up a speaking practice again. But I'm going to do it speaking on the principles of prosperity. And so all those people from the sales arena who followed me for all those years... They can still get value for that. so I can reignite that old tribe. And there's these millions of other people who are not in sales, who are architects and attorneys and corporate vice presidents and sculptors and opera writers and you know whatever, that they need to learn this prosperity stuff. And that's when that change happened. So I came out of retirement. I created like three keynotes and a couple of uh, weekend workshops and on the principles of prosperity, how you manifest a prosperous life.
0: Just that. I mean, it's pretty impressive that, by the way, big shout out to Ford Seeks. I used him as a coach one time. Uh, really nice guy. And I think I spoke with him about, I think we did six months ago, we did a virtual together. Nice guy. Great guy. The, I, I think it takes a lot to kind of just give something up. You know, and and it's interesting, as I'm listening to your story, I said, I don't know if so much courage is that you reach a point of, you know, this point of sublimation, I guess is the word, where you just can't dampen it in anymore. Do you know what I mean? You can't do this anymore. So it's not so much courage. I just can't do that anymore. And so as you made that shift, after getting scolded by Bill Gove, what a way to get scolded, man. What a way to get a kick in the backside. And then now you're building this stuff out. Prosperity. Said you got and you wrote how many books around prosperity, Randy? Uh,
1: okay, so this one behind me you see on the wall, Radical Rebirth. That's my fourteenth book. Um, three were on direct selling, and uh, Too Risky Is the New Safe and Mad Genius are more just for entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in general, and then the rest would be, I think, really prosperity consciousness.
0: So, so what did you find, you know, or what have you found and are still finding, like on this journey, I mean, you've made the pivot, prosperity, I'm not going to seek it in the back door. This is what I want to talk about. This is kind of what I'm feeling. You know, what did you find initially, you know, not, forget about the audience for a second, you, Randy, what did you discover about yourself as you were going through that process?
1: Well, I just found I have a gift for practical application. Because that's, again, I was so, especially at that point in my life, right? Because when I went to therapy, the, for people who've been through what I've been through, they're going to recognize this. The therapist said to me, you are totally in your head, right? So people who've gone through that, they know, they, they had a therapist tell them that. They know what I'm talking about. So I'm just, I break it down. I rationalize, it. I chunk it down. Okay, how did this work? What are the five steps of this? What is this? So I would read Think and Grow Rich and As a Man Thinketh and The Dynamic Laws of Prosperity by Catherine Ponder and Prosperity by Charles Fillmore and Science of Mind by Ernest Holmes. And I'd say, these are beautiful principles, but how do you practice them in daily life with like today, I would say, how would you practice it today with the toxicity of social media and the polarization? Now, when I started, we didn't have social media, but we had the Jerry Springer show and we had the all these spin-off equivalents of that. So this kind of thing has always been around. And so I felt like there's a real need. To, to break this down into practical application and say, okay, uh, uh, how do you apply the circulation law of prosperity, the forgiveness law of prosperity, the imaging law of prosperity? How do you do this in a real world where you're, taking the kids to soccer practice and you got to pick up the dry cleaning and you're grabbing drive through from, a, you know, dinner from a drive through somewhere and, you know, you've got your job and your side hustle and your family things and your church responsibilities and, the, you know, how do you do that? And that's really what my work has been about. You know, the inner, like this new book, Radical Rebirth, I feel it's the, the culmination of all the work I've ever done for my entire career. Because it's like people, like I went through this, you know, I joked it was like my fourth midlife crisis, maybe two years ago, uh, when I just said, you know, uh, the, the market seems to think I'm a professional speaker who writes books now and then. But that isn't really, I don't want to be a speaker who writes, I want to be a writer who speaks. Because again, I'm happiest when I'm just knocking out my next book. And it's because I write my books, obviously, for myself. Because they let me know what I'm thinking. They force me to think about what I'm thinking about. They force me to justify the beliefs I have. They force me to question the premises that I've accepted. And um, and I'm happy of saying, let me write those books. And then the people who want to bring me in and say, okay... Here, we have the author of Radical Rebirth here today, and he's going to talk about what's in the book and how it impacts you and how you can create, uh, recreate or reinvent your life. That's what I want to do. So so my friends who love me are like, roll their eyes and like, okay, Randy's having another midlife crisis. Let's hope this is, you know, they'll say to me, well, out. <laughs> did, you know, is this the? Did you finally figure it out? Is this the one for you? And I always say, I hope not. I I hope I'm still around to do another four or five radical rebirths or midlife crisis, um, because that's to me how we can really quantify a prosperous life, right? So,
0: so I, I, let's do this, Randy. So I want to know first, let's just jump me the Radical Rebirth, because you, you, you teed it up nicely. I want to go in now. I want to go in. Mm-hmm. So the what is the premise of Radical Rebirth? Let, let's begin with the, the general premise of what the book is about. And then let, let, let's just start carving this thing up. Yeah. Teased okay. it up nicely, man. All right. So call it How to
1: Kill Off the Old You and Create the You You Want to Become because when I was 15 years old sitting in that jail cell waiting for the court date to find out if I was going to get tried as an adult and go to prison for 20 years or have a shot at a fresh start, you kind of figure, you know, this career path I've chosen isn't really working for me, you know? Um, And when I was sitting in the uh, airport, Miami airport Marriott in a dingy room looking at the dumpster of the place next door. Um, By way, just as you're
0: describing that visual, I get you. Meet uh-huh. in a hotel, speaking, you like, there's the dumpster, there's the parking lot, I get it. Yeah. I'm with you. So I'm sitting
1: there with my journal writing my final suicide note. Now, I'm blessed that I got professional help and, you know, there's a therapist I could call and did and didn't end you're it. Not, but, you're not joking
0: about that, are you? You're not joking about that, are you? No, I'm not joking about that.
1: No, I was ready to. that That's you know, I wasn't writing a suicide note to the world. Yeah, I was writing a journal to myself on why suicide was what I needed to do here, and that to put my mind at peace before I did it. And um, you get to those kind of tipping points in life. And you, and what I was able to—the to, insight I got by not killing myself—was realizing I don't have to kill myself. I can kill off the parts of me that I don't like, and that's what my initial radical rebirths were about. Was where well, I really had to kill off old versions of me, and I was running away. Because I hated myself. I hated my life. And the reason I hated my life,
0: because I hated myself. But how, and, is, that, how is that? I, I got to interrupt, Randy, because this is, it's like, how, how is that possible? Because anybody watching from the outside looking in, by the way, I appreciate your frankness. I really do. Anybody looking from the outside in, go, dude has everything. Sold off his business, got this, got that. He's got everything. What's he whining about? It means you mean he's going to off himself? Why? You know, give us some insight into, you know, because I think it's, It's rare that I get to have this this type of conversation with somebody so openly. But I think it might serve somebody who doesn't understand or might be in a similar situation.
1: Yeah, because there's a huge distinction between success and significance. And success doesn't really offer much nourishment. Significance is where the nourishment comes in. And like when I sold the business, it's because I realized, okay, I have, at that time I had like 15 employees and I needed $125,000 a month to break even. So if you went to the National Speakers Association convention, which whenever it comes up this summer, right? And you told people there, hey, I can show you how you can make $125,000 a month in your business, $150,000. You know, they would crawl naked over broken glass and throw their credit card at you to get that, right? Because that's success. But when you're in that success, from my perspective was, okay, I got these fifteen. Little baby birdies in the nest saying, "Give me worms! Give me worms! Give me worms! Come on, daddy, come in and give me a worm in my mouth." Because if I don't do one hundred twenty-five thousand, I'm, I'm, you know, going to lose money. So I've got to do one hundred and fifty a month or two hundred a month to have any shot at profit, lifestyle for myself, growing the business, investing, all of that stuff. And I just like that's a, that, I'm on this gerbil wheel or hamster wheel. I'm just running around. And like I had clients who were, you know, I had consulting clients who paid me 20000 a month. And I'm thinking, if I shut all this down, and I just kept Lornet, my personal assistant, and had one client who paid me $20,000 a month, I could pay her $3,000 a month, and have $17,000 a month profit. And I don't have 150 people trying to eat my brains every day, and 27, you know, I'm, I have 7 million airplane miles in seat mile, not credit card points. I mean, I've got I'm a 3 million miler with, uh, Delta and a 2 million miler with American or vice versa. And then, you know, uh, whatever with United. And then I can't even tell you how many Adria air in Ljubljana, Slovenia and seven, uh, airline in Ukraine that don't even give me miles. Right. Um, So the human body is not designed to be in a pressurized canister at 30,000 feet for a million miles a year. It's just not. And I realized I could have a much more prosperous life, right? And then again, it's like, okay, so if, if I have, you know, Two million people who pay me $27 to learn how to get a prospect's phone number, I make this much money. But is that gonna make me feel good in myself? Whereas if I say, what well, if I really teach somebody the principles of prosperity and this single mother who's living on welfare in her friend's basement with her two kids learns how to go out and become an entrepreneur and be successful? That's significance. That's, you know, if I can show somebody that, okay, it isn't just, and listen, I I had all the watches and the cars and the homes and all of that. And I don't, I love that I was able to manifest all that. And I still, uh, I live well, right? I'm not an ascetic. I'm not living in a monastery. I haven't renounced all my possessions. I live well, right? Right. but I know that's not the meaning in my life. How many, uh, you know, uh, watches I have, or how many sports cars I have? They're, you know, that yeah. social signaling stuff. It's I'm so over that.
0: <laughs> yeah, you get you get past that when you're writing that that suicide note in the journal. Then you, there's looking back, Randy. Then there's obviously the pivot point towards significance. Why did you even contemplate writing that? I mean, you had full control of your life, your career, everything. Did you not understand how to get to significance or pivot towards significance? No, I didn't know how to
1: pivot towards significance. It was Christmas Eve, and I was staying at the Marriott because I had just broken up with my relationship, my 11th negative dysfunctional relationship in a row. And said, you know, I want to be a good guy, just keep the house, keep the furniture, I'll pay all the bills, you know. I just want to be a good guy. You know, I I recognized through three years of therapy that I wasn't emotionally mature enough to be in a relationship at that point. I was in the relationship because both of us were, by the way, we were both in love with the idea of being in love. But we weren't capable of being in love. Uh, And particularly me, because I was so emotionally stunted. I had put such walls around myself and never let anybody in. Because I didn't love myself. So I'm certainly not going to let anyone else love me, because I'm not worthy. And um, so, you know, if you're after 11 negative dysfunctional relationships in a row, where the name changes, the face changes, you know, but it's the same person, (laughs) like they're just having plastic surgery and coming back. And then you have to say, well, you know, and so I looked at, you know, I had business uh, setbacks and a lot of health challenges and all these negative relationships. And I, I had to ask the question that transformed my life, which was, is there one person who was always at the scene of the crime? Hmm. And, you know, I did not like the answer to that question, but that was the question that I needed to ask myself.
0: The man in the mirror is rough, man. The man in the mirror is rough. So, so you make this pivot towards significance. Something triggered that. What triggered that? Like you said, okay, you know, we're going we're gonna to burn the book with the notes, right? And we're going to make that. What was that? I
1: think for me, the the breakthrough was getting to love myself, which started with getting to like myself, which again came with recognizing, okay, I don't have to kill myself. I have to, I have to kill off the parts of myself that I don't like. The, like When you're an, so I was a teenage alcoholic and a teenage drug addict. That's what got me in jail for armed robbery, right? When you're an addict, you're the most duplicitous manipulative person in the world, okay? You pick, you know, Al Pacino, Meryl Streep, Jack Nicholson, Sean Penn, whoever you think is the greatest actor in the world, they can't hold a candle to an addict who needs their next fix, okay? Because we can sell you anything, right? So I say I'm not a salesman, but when you're an addict, you could sell aluminum siding to a steel factory, right? You're just so, if you don't buy this aluminum siding, the puppies are going to die and the kittens will drown and my mother will get cancer and I will be fine, you know, you just, you... Um, so you hate yourself because you're a despicable human. No, let me not, let me cancel that. I was going to say you're a despicable human being. You're not, you're a human being who's acting in despicable ways. Hmm. And so there's a reason why you hate yourself. And so you realize, and so you realize, okay, there's something about me that I need to change. And it's just maybe because of the social anxiety. I mean, I could put a hundred different things, but I had built this wall around myself that nobody would ever be able to hurt me again. So I would get into relationships with people who wanted to love me, who cared for me, who were wanted the best for me, but I couldn't let them in because if I let them in, then I would be letting in the possibility that they could hurt me. And the wall that project that, that that protects you from rejection is the same law that protects you from love and empathy and caring and and compassion that people want to give you. And so it took me, I I did about four years worth of therapy uh, with professional therapist and with group therapy to, get to the point where I liked myself. And that's, this is the thing with the new book that I think, because I, I'm, I hope people don't think, okay, I, I'm not despondent and suicidal, so I don't need to read that book. A bunch of different people are going to come and everybody does. It's been out a few weeks now, so I've got to get some really great, amazing feedback um, and people come to it at where they're at in their life. Like for me, this latest radical rebirth wasn't because I hated myself or I hated my life. I was balling, right? I'm I'm doing great. But the latest rebirth was not that I was running away from a past I hated, but running toward a future that I wanted to manifest. And so some of the Everybody who's watching or listening right now, you're all in your unique space where you are. And some of you may be as really dark as I was, and you really need to kill off an old version of yourself. And for others, you've really evolved really well. But again, the surface stuff can be really misleading, right? If we interviewed Bill Cosby two or three years ago, he was was balling. If we interviewed Harvey Weinstein, two, three, he was top of his game, right? Life, life comes at you fast. So, and that's, again, the difference, you know, Cosby, Weinstein, they had success. They didn't have significance, right?
0: Because they had dark secrets that they were harboring. Um, you know, you go, you go towards like, you know, one of the things I did for myself, Randy, sharing, is that when I turned 50, and I wrote a book around this called The Greatest Gift. And so at the age of fifty, I gave myself the ultimate gift. And that was the gift of forgiveness. At fifty, I said, All right, from this moment forward, there's no no reach backs. In other words, you can't reach back and pull something some boner you pulled back then. In other words, you were an idiot, you did that, it was a boneheaded move, you shouldn't have done it. And I found for some, I found solace in that. So every time I found myself thinking about something and my brain reached back, I said, whoa, 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 wait, you can't do that. We've already agreed to that. And that's, you know, and I think that's part of kind of what you're talking about. It's not just so killing yourself. It's also forgiving yourself. Did you, is that kind of blended in there as well? You have no
1: idea what you tapped into there, Victor.
0: <laughs> the, what's your
1: lead time from us uh, putting this in the can and then you putting
0: it out there in the world? As fast as you want, Matt. For you, as fast as you want. What do you want? Two-day turnaround, three-day turnaround? What do you want?
1: Okay, so it's coming out right away. All right, so if, well, first of all, I think it's the penultimate, what is that word? The second to the last? Penultimate, I think. Okay, the penultimate chapter in Radical Rebirth Mm -hmm. is exactly on that, on forgiveness and forgiving yourself. So you, you tapped into a gold mine there. And why I asked about the timing of this is I'm doing a, it's, I, it's something I've been experimenting with in this new rebirth of my life is I started a prosperity ministry. I call it the prosperity unchurch because it's not a church. It's not a religion. But I do a prosperity celebration service every Saturday. And I started it January of this year. And so I'm doing them. Uh, I'm testing different times, whatever it looks like. Uh, so I'm doing, and anyone who's listening or watching wants to know, just go to randygage.com and then look for the little stripe that says watch the prosperity live stream. If you click there, it'll be... Uh, It'll take you to the page and show you when's the next one, what's the topic, and it has the archives of the old ones. But this Saturday, so four or five days after you and I are talking now, and so when this is out, this Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern, um, uh, I will be doing, the topic is Destination forgiveness. (laughs) Because again, it's such an important, the thing people have to recognize is, like I said, when you're an addict, you're such a manipulator, you lie about everything in your life. And when you finally stop being an addict, you remember every lie you have ever told you remember every horrific like you know we have we have a real world example right now right we we both probably watched the super bowl yesterday as probably you know a billion people around the world did and of course the one of the coaches who's the son of the head coach um had a few drinks and took some medicine and went out and got involved in an accident and two young children were critically injured and one is doing really bad. She hasn't woke up since the accident for days now. And um, he know. I mean, imagine, for, obviously your heart is to the, everybody was impacted, these two little girls, children. Um, but as a former addict myself, I just say there, but by the grace of, Allah, whoever, that isn't me, because, um, you, I mean, you that's the kind of thing. How do you forgive yourself for stuff like that? But you have to. You can never, you know, How I was shot in a robbery, right? The guy who shot me was a hopped up crackhead, right? Um, I, I forgave that guy. I had to forgive that guy because that's the only way I could move forward. And as someone who's been powerless over an addiction myself, I'm not going to judge anyone else who's going through that. My heart is, you know, I, you know, I had a practice yesterday with my softball team, and people were talking about this coach and that son of a, you know, and man, I hope he. And I'm like, listen, uh, I've been powerless over an addiction. I, I'm not going to be the one to judge that guy, and you know what I mean. Uh, forgiveness. Oh my God! You've got to forgive everybody who has wronged you, and you have to forgive yourself. And that's why I'm doing this. I was going to go
0: there. I was going to go there with you because at the end of the day, we have to forgive ourselves. And just a slightly tangent back to sales, just a little bit, because I think there's some of it. Because this this whole thing about. Forgiveness seeps into every aspect of our lives, personal or professional. Doesn't even matter. Like I, I know salespeople who still can't forgive themselves for actually screwing up a deal years ago, or people who screwed up a relationship because they did X, Y, Z. And so it's it's a really big topic. Yeah. And so, you know, when you as you were writing the book, Randy, like, you know, because sometimes when you're when you're writing, as you said, you start thinking about how you think, and this mindfulness kicks in. What, what did you discover during the writing of Radical Rebirth? I go, you know, when I started writing the book, I didn't have that. But when I finished it, I had that.
1: What I discovered writing the book was shocking to me because it's so simple, but so profound. It took me writing that book and getting it out in the world to recognize the linkage between self-esteem and prosperity. And I don't believe anyone has ever connected those two dots. You know, as I think of the Fillmore book and Ernest Holmes and Asamant think it, Think It Grow Rich, The Magic of Thinking Big. All of my case material, all of everything I studied for 20, 30 years on the subject of, of manifesting a prosperous life. I don't think anyone ever really made the connection that I the conclusion that I came to when I was, because when you read the book, you're just gonna it'll blow your mind because I prosecute the case when I say you're being programmed That money is bad, and rich people are evil, and it's spiritual to be poor, and now let me show you. And I say, let's look at whatever generation you are, millennial, boomer, you know, you tell me your generation, and then I'm going to say, okay, let's look at the television shows, the movies, the New York Times bestsellers, the operas, the plays, the everything, and I just, you know, so I'll give you some themes and then I'll say, now, let's see how many movies and people's mind are just, their heads are exploding when they see these lists of all the characters in literature that they've been programmed with their whole life and never realized they were programmed with it.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's very Orwellian hey, if you think about it.
1: Oh, you, you
0: just really, they're just
1: blown away. I mean, They just cannot believe the, well, give you an example right? If the, um, we talk about mind viruses a lot in the book, how you get your, you are a mind virus, just like you get it on your laptop, you get a virus, you get a virus in your subconscious mind, right? Like money is bad. Rich people are evil. That's a mind virus. Well, what these memes, and that's what really a meme is, you know, people that name kind of got stolen by people who call a slide on Twitter that that's a meme, but meme was actually a concept developed by um, the selfish gene, Dr. Richard Dawkins. Uh, as he wrote the selfish gene, he wanted to, he took meme from mem- memetics, which is comes from uh, Greek. So the idea of a mind virus. And so, one of the things you learn about my viruses is, is the more emotional they are, the more rapidly they spread. right because the mind viruses actually parasitize the host and cause you to replicate the virus. So if I you know if Nike creates a virus, um, just do it, you get infected with it, you replicate it and you spread it. you buy a Nike just do it t-shirt, you tell your friend just do it, you write a blog. You know? How many speakers, authors, coaches, and consultants have written books, blogs, and everything on just do it? It's a mind
0: boggling. I, I, I love what you just said, right? I just want to pause because that, that, that's kind of deep, actually, that the more emotional it is, the more it replicates. I've never looked at it that way. It's a very fascinating way to look at that.
1: Well, and here's what makes them even more emotional if they involve children. Because we all were children once, we all. So when a meme involves a child without their parent, it's very emotional. Because every mom who's watching that movie, every father who's watching that movie, says, oh my god, this poor child has been up for so. And every person who was a child remembers panicking when they. Got separated from their mother in a department store, or thought they were lost, or maybe they were given up for adoption, or their parents left them, and you know they were orphan on the street. So I, when I say I prosecute the case, I got a chapter on that. I say, so let's look at this meme about orphan, because isn't it funny? Superman was an orphan, Batman was an orphan, Spider Man was an orphan. Harry Potter was an orphan. And I go through a list that takes like three pages in the book. Just like one after the war from Star Trek, Michael Burnham from Star Trek. How many orphans do we have in Game of Thrones? How many, you know, because I go Puccini operas, Joseph Campbell mythology, uh, shows from the 70s, 80s, 90s, the odds, shows today. You know, and I show how these memes keep getting reintroduced by the book authors, the opera composers, the playwrights, the television executives, whatever. And you realize, my God, I have been being subjected with this programming 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So that's a real wake-up call for people in the book. And so now, put it all together to this thesis I'm saying about self-esteem we all reach this tipping point of young adulthood We've we've finished high school or we've not gone to high school. And now we make a decision. We're going to choose a university and get an education, or we're going to go out in the workforce and we're going to select a career. So take two, two subjects, subject A and subject B. Subject A has low self-esteem, doesn't think she's worthy. Um, is fear-based, you know, is, just thinks she was born a sorry sinner, she's been programmed, whatever. And subject B, she has high self-esteem, and she expects good things to happen. She's not waiting for the other shoe to drop. So they both get a job in the same company, right? Now, six months later, there's a new vice president opening opening up, right, position. It, the person with low self-esteem, they're not even going to apply for it. They say, well, I would never get that job. They never get that job to me. I wouldn't even set in my application, right? This happens 100,000 decisions over their adulthood. Somebody says, hey, there's this new company. It's called Amazon.com. You can buy the stock for $15 a share. What you'd say, come on, online books. Nobody buys books on the internet. That's a dumb idea. That's what a person with low self-esteem would say. They would, they would just, and they wouldn't do this consciously, because remember, it's a mind virus. They don't even know they're programming it. But they would just say, "If this really was a great investment like that, I would never hear about it, because the insiders would know about it first, and they would have got all the stock before I even got offered it, right? You buy a story, and this, like I say, it's a it's hundred thousand decisions come out of this. Do you? Walk across the dance floor and ask that girl to dance. Do you yeah. ask that woman to marry you? Do you choose to take a detour and, you know, go see the gardens along the way as you're driving to wherever?
0: Yeah. Hey, uh, Randy, just, just as, as you're talking about that, you're reminding me of two things by two different authors. Because uh, uh, there's the cumulative effect, right? Like Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outlier. Talked about how people have advantages, you know, because they have this cumulative effect. But also—I've never thought about—until you just brought it up—that it could work in the opposite way, that because of negative self-esteem, you have this negative accumulation of bad things. But you also reminded me of—I uh, think his name is Dr. Martin Seligman. He wrote the book *Learned Optimism*, and he talked about the self-explanatory style of what you say to yourself. And I—and I think you're you're digging right beneath that. You know what I mean? To say it's—it's all self-esteem in terms of what you say to yourself. And I think what people say to themselves is very damaging. I think it's what you're saying.
1: I'm telling you, Steph Curry, Steph Curry he launches a three-point shot. Mm-hmm. And he turns around and starts going down the court because he doesn't even need to see to know that it's going in. Yeah, You have to have high self-esteem for that. So you say, well, of course Steph Curry has high self-esteem. He's the greatest basketball player in the world. He makes $30 million a year. No. The reason he's the great basketball player and makes 30, 000, $30 million dollars a year or whatever the number is I'm just pulling that out of the air is because he had enough self-esteem he believed in himself he tried out for the team he entered the draft he made choices believing and we can do this for Lady Gaga and we could do this for uh, John Grisham and we can do this for Oprah and The Rock and we could do it for the Pulitzer Prize winners and the people who develop vaccines and we could do it for the sales leaders in every company. We could do it for the, the best poets in any and every field on earth. The people who reach the, the levels of significance
0: they have positive self-esteem. I want to ask you a question. I think it's going to be a tough question for you. So I'm, I'm, I'm prepping you for the tough question. Yeah. Uh, because I, I think there's a contradiction here you have to resolve. And only you can resolve this one. And that is, if, if self-esteem is the key to prosperity, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but self-esteem is the key to prosperity. You were at a time very prosperous while you had Damaged self-esteem. Can I say that? So reconcile that for me.
1: Oh, that's easy. That's not hard at all.
0: I wasn't prosperous.
1: I was rich. Big difference.
0: I knew you were going to say that, but go ahead. (laughs) Uh,
1: Harvey Weinstein used to be rich. Bill Cosby used to be rich. They were never prosperous. I was never prosperous. I had a lot of money. Right? I had $85,000 watches, $65,000 watches, $50,000. I had 250 watches. I had a fleet of uh, exotic sports cars down in the garage that I could pick a car, whatever color car matched my shoes that day. Okay, I flew first class in private suites on Emirates Airline and Singapore Airlines and flew private and but I was not prosperous because I didn't have my health. I didn't have mental harmony and I didn't have a spiritual grounding and I didn't have healthy relationships. So you can't have prosperity without all prosperity is very holistic and includes all those things. Now don't, don't make the mistake. A lot of people do to say, okay, so if I have health and happiness and harmony, but I don't have any money, then I'm prosperous. No, you need the money too. The money and material things are part of the process because people tell me, yeah, but look at, look at how noble, how prosperous Mother Teresa was and she didn't own anything. And I say, yes, Mother Teresa was very prosperous because she had people like me who sent her money every month. Right? Because she actually had a, uh, a shelter for battered women here in Miami that I supported every month, I'd send a check, right? So even Mother Teresa needed money to be prosperous. So um, when people say, well, I got my health and great relationships. So if you're worried about getting evicted tomorrow, you're not prosperous. If you're worried like, God, I don't know what to tell the kids. I don't know if we're gonna have lunch today. That's not prosperous. We got to put the whole package together, the money and material things, the health and wellness, the mental health and harmony, the spiritual connection. doesn't mean it has to be God or religion or anything, just spiritual connection um, and and healthy relationships.
0: I love it, Randy. All right, man, you get the final word, man. I can't top that. That's just too good to just leave. Any final words before we head off here?
1: The thing I, I was telling them in this prosperity, this last prosperity live stream I did is uh, because th- that was the topic, how to manifest a prosperous life, is please understand your book is not complete. You're just at a current chapter, but you get, there are other chapters you get to write. And you really can have, You can create a radical rebirth for yourself. Uh, and again, maybe you, you may be where I was in those dark times where you really need to kill off and run away from an old version of yourself. But hopefully you're not. Hopefully you're where I'm at now, where I'm running toward what I want to get to, which is just that I understand there's no destination I'm running to. I'm savoring the process of each and every day working to become the highest possible version of myself. And that, if you approach your sales career and your life with that same philosophy, that, okay, I'm just working toward becoming the highest Possible version of myself. That is that's what living a prosperous life is really about.
0: Randy, thank you, Matt. This was an awesome interview, Matt. Anyway, this is Victor Antonio. Uh, you know where to find me. Check out Spotify, uh, iTunes, Pandoras. Let me know what you think. Uh, I enjoyed this interview. I think that's almost like the spiritual side of selling, if I could just kind of sell it my way that way. Anyway, leave us some feedback, and when you get a chance, check out randygage.com. But do what I'm going to do is buy the book, Radical Rebirth. Go to Amazon, Radical Rebirth. Uh, I've read uh, some of Brandy's past books. Uh, I got a feeling this is not going to disappoint in any way, Brandy. So thank you for that. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio signing off, always reminding you, selling ain't hard when you know how, and you're prosperous in the end.